If you want to follow along, it is starting on page 11 and going to page 12. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men that, you, that came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can know them intimately. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never been with a man. Let me bring them to you, and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the man with the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that it has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry, get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wives and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hands and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me by sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to, and it's small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town is called Zoar, which means small. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land, and the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. 
Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family through the line of our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you go in and sleep with him, so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware if it, of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughter became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Am Ammonites of today. <laughs> uh, we're going to release the kids in a moment, but uh, let, me, let me pray for them as we release them. God, we thank you so much for our children. We thank you for your word. Um, I just pray your rich blessing on, uh, on Children's Church tonight, that uh, you will help us just see your gospel and your good news and your good word uh, through such rich, rich text. And um, God, I pray for the adults upstairs, too. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for servants of your word who, who are able to see your love um, and, and help us to understand your will and your love for us, God. Um, please bless, bless the kids and their teachers, God. For this to your son. Amen. Amen. So, tomorrow, Halloween, right? Well, that means at least two things. One, it means that our third annual chili cook-off is tonight, right? I hope, you're, I hope you can stick around for that. And it means the new horror movies are out, like Paranormal Activity, and I think there's that one about the thing. And, um, you know, in the typical horror film, you have suspense and you have violence, and maybe, maybe you have a supernatural element, usually some kind of deviant sex, and, and you've got the Hollywood formula for the, you know, the, the horror movies that come out every year. Sounds a lot like Genesis 19, doesn't it? Let's see, we have supernatural visitors from heaven, we've got a lady turning into salt, there's an attempted gang rape, fire and brimstone burn up a city, and a drunk guy sleeps with his daughters. There you go. It's our horror movie for the evening. I mean, I don't know if you've read this story before, I mean, I know we're all coming from different backgrounds, and so maybe you have gone to church in your background, and yeah, it's Genesis 19, I just skip over it. Or maybe you're new to this, and you're like, what the heck is that doing in a Bible? Like, is that story, what is it doing there? And what are we supposed to do with it? What are we as the church supposed to do with a story like that? 
Well, the Bible, of course, is a compilation of writings made up from many different authors over thousands and thousands of years. And not only is it a bunch of books by a bunch of authors over a bunch of different time periods, but there's a bunch of different genres in the Bible. So you've got letters from Paul in the first century to all these churches, and so... That's the genre of letters. And then you have these stories about Jesus' life we call the Gospels. Then you have poetry and the Psalms and history writings. And you have story or narrative. And here we have this incredible, incredibly weird narrative in the book of Genesis. What I love about narratives is that they are the account of God intervening in real people's really messy lives in real time. These narratives of scripture, like this one we're going to cover this evening, they're not there so much that we would emulate the characters in them. Wouldn't that get us into a lot of trouble if we did some of the things in this story? Uh, But these stories are here so that we can know God and see how he interacts in the world and how he even can interact in the most weird and messed up situations. So we're in the 19th chapter of Genesis, and like any good story, if you were to go to the bookstore and pick up the latest novel that you've been dying to read, would you ever just start in the 19th chapter? No, you wouldn't know what the heck's going on. You'd ruin the whole suspense of the story, right? So if you're joining us for the first time this evening, or maybe you've missed the last few weeks, let me just try and quickly recap what's been going on so that when we hit Genesis 19, uh, we'll have a clue. So a long time ago... God created, created heaven and earth and the stars and the plants and the animals. And it doesn't say how God created, just says that he did it. He's responsible for everything. And in particular, Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God made people in his image. Not just the first people, but like you and me too, made in God's image. And what that means is probably a little less than us looking like God, because we all look quite different, don't we? But more about um, us bearing his character, his image. Our, his intent in creating people, the crown jewel of his creation, is that we would reflect his good character to the rest of the world and to each other. Well, early on in the story of Genesis, uh, people rebel against God. They think, well, maybe God doesn't have my best interest in mind, and so they they go a different way. And they're separated from relationship with him. And so many of those first 11 chapters are episodes of God reaching out to people, people rebelling, and um, basically getting worse and worse and worse off. Until Genesis chapter 12. God decides, it seems, to employ a new plan. He chooses a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah. You heard of this couple, Abraham and Sarah. He tells them that he's going to give them some special land and he is going to bless them. He's going to give them a great name, great influence and and just bless them in every way possible so that they would be a blessing to everyone else. He wants to create them into this big family and this big tribe, this big nation that blesses everyone in the world so that people would know the tangible goodness of God. It's almost like this family that God has in mind, that Abraham and Sarah and their descendants are going to be like, like God with skin on in a way. Tangible blessers of the world. Well, there are just a few problems with this plan, at least from our perspective. One, Abraham and Sarah, one of the things we learn about them is they can't have kids. They're supposed to be this great nation of people, and they can't have kids. Two, there are other tribes of people already living in the land that's supposedly theirs. And three, they consistently 
consistently show a lack of faith. And as the story goes, God and two angels disguise themselves as men. Right? And, and they, they show up at Abraham's camp. This is in Genesis 18. They visit Abraham and Sarah. God and his posse are there, and it seems they're there to do two things, to bring some good news and to, to give them a test. The good news is that in one year from the, these three visitors' visit, Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son. They're supposed to name him Isaac, which means laughter. And then there's the test. It's a twofold test. First, how would Abraham treat complete strangers? He doesn't know their social status. He doesn't know where they're from. How would this man who God has blessed treat these strangers? Well, Abraham passes the test over, over the top. In ancient Near East, you're supposed to take people in and give them shelter and protection, wash their feet, give them a meal. Well, Abraham just goes over the top. He gets the choice fattened lamb and he, or, or calf, and he, he feeds this extravagant meal to these three complete strangers. He gives a meal that you might, you might give to the president if he was coming over. The second test, well, in the second test, God reveals who he is. So now Abraham and Sarah know that it's more than just three men. It's God and two angels. And he tells Abraham that he's heard the cries of the city of Sodom. And what we talked about last week was that means that the city is actually calling out... The voices of the voiceless of that city are calling out to God. And what happens in places of oppression is that the powerful and the wicked try and crush those who are weak and poor. They, they use murder. They use um, discrimination. And so the voiceless have no voice. But, but what we're learning here is that God hears even those people who don't think they have a voice. And so he, he, he gets Abraham in on this plan. And he says, should I bring judgment to this place? Abraham, Abraham again passes the test by interceding for the city. Remember, this guy and his family is chosen to be blessed by God, to be a blessing to other people. So here God says, hey, here's this wicked city. Should I just zap them? And Abraham says, wait a minute. Wait a minute, are you seriously going to destroy that whole city, even if there's a few righteous in it? God, what if there's 50 righteous people? Would you wipe them away with the wicked? I think God's secretly smiling like, good boy, you're passing the test. Well, no, I wouldn't do it if there's 50 righteous people. And then Abraham, you know, well, well, I got your attention. Forgive me for being so bold. What if there's 45? And what if there's 40? And what if there's 35? And they work this all the way down into, what if there's just 10 righteous people in Sodom, would you seriously destroy it? God says, no, I wouldn't do that. So, that's pretty awesome. He sends two angels disguised as men down to the city to discover for themselves, to report directly to God, how bad is the situation in Sodom? And that is the opening to our chapter this evening. Now, I know that what Charles and Jenny just read has all kinds of weirdness and judgment and yeah, R-rated stuff, but I want to submit to you that even in this R-rated story, we are going to see God's mercy and His rescue. So stick with me. Now, one of the things that's easy for us in the 21st century to overlook 
from our perspective at least, is that the God of the Bible is so drastically different from the other gods uh, in the ancient Near East. For example, uh, the gods of the ancient world were thought to be cold and calculating. They behaved more like teenagers with superpowers, right? They could be fickle and they would fight each other and uh, basically um, they were spiteful and vengeful and vindictive. Most of all, it was believed that these other gods, for example, of Canaan and in these places were functioned on a system of reciprocity. That means you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You be a good person and I won't kill you. You step out of line, zap, you're dead. Now that is a far cry from the God presented in Scripture. This God created everything and longs to bless everything He created. He longs for right relatedness between Himself and people, and He longs for us to love one another. Just like if you're a parent, you love for your kids to get along, right? That's kind of God's perspective on that. He wants to send people to Sodom to make sure that there's not one righteous one there because it breaks God's heart when he has to judge he's not indifferent he's not cold and calculating and functioning on a system of reciprocity so the two visitors come to the city gate disguised as men and they meet Lot Abraham's nephew now the city gate was the place in an ancient city where everything happened. You would hang out there if you had any kind of status. That's where you would conduct your business. It's where you would meet and greet new people. You would hear the news of the day. You would extend hospitality to visitors. And you would even hear uh, like municipal cases. If two people had a dispute, the elders of that town would be at the gate and they would hear that dispute. What's hard for me is when when I say you read about a small city in scripture, maybe you think, oh, Bellingham's a small city. Maybe it's like that. It's a lot smaller. I mean, there might be 100 to 200, maybe 300 people in a town that we're talking about Sodom size. And so I want you to think more if you've ever been to like Fort Nisqually or something like that, like this walled little village is more what it's like. And maybe houses on the outside next to the wall and one main gate that they would have open during the day and close at night for protection. And so people would be hanging out at this little gate. Excuse me. Now, I mentioned last week, but this value in the ancient Near East of hospitality was so important. It was common etiquette to invite a stranger into your house. You're expected to do that. You're to wash their feet. You're to respect their honor. And Abraham did that for the three travelers in chapter 18, and Lot does that here in chapter 19. Now, not to provide proper hospitality was an act of dishonor. It would tarnish your family name, and it would tarnish your whole city as a bad place. Now, what's interesting here in this story is that Lot is the one to greet these travelers. Nothing is mentioned of the people of Sodom even being here at the city gate, let alone being hospitable. This is all the more strange because Lot isn't originally from Sodom. He's a foreigner himself. He's a foreigner himself who's just kind of set up shop there in Sodom. And yet there appears to be such a leadership vacuum in this city that Lot is one of the nobles. He's one of the people at the city gate. Well, this really shouldn't surprise us, right? Uh, Back in chapter 13, we saw Abraham and and Lot had too many resources and their herdsmen were fighting. And so Abraham gives Lot the choice of where he wants to live. And where does he go? East, which 
in Genesis, a lot of times when you hear people moving east, it's bad. So you hear that music, dun, 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 lots moving east. And where does he set up shop? Next to Sodom. So a little bit of foreshadowing there. And then in chapter 14, we, there's this story about these marauding kings. And they come in and they conquer Sodom. And they take Sodom, uh, a lot of the Sodomites captive, including Lot, Abraham's nephew. So Abraham goes Navy SEAL commando. He takes in 318 dudes behind enemy lines. And he captures Lot back. And he takes all this booty back. And, and he, you know, he triumphs over these foreign kings. He gets back and, and gives everything to, back to the king of Sodom. And the king of Sodom is like... Whatever. He, he's really rude in ancient Near Eastern terms. So uh, you're learning a little bit of uh, foreshadowing in these earlier chapters that Sodom is not a good place. And even the leadership there uh, is suspect. So Lot offers these travelers, whom he doesn't know are angels yet, a place to stay. And they say, nah, I think we'll stay in the courtyard tonight. All right. So you remember how I told you about all this ancient Near Eastern hospitality thing? It's really important to offer hospitality. Well, the converse is true, too. If you show up in a new town, someone invites you to their house, you're expected to go there. And so to reject someone's hospitality like these visitors did is very, very rude. They're up to something. So, Lot instead of being all bent out of shape and saying, you guys are really rude, I don't want you at my house anyway, he insists that they come to his house. In fact, the Hebrew talks about, is more of the, the word pressing. He pressed them to come. In our vernacular, we might say, he twisted their arm. And what we find out in this little exchange is that Lot knows very well what would happen to these men if they stay in the courtyard. That means that Lot knows the evil of Sodom. And yet he's chosen to, uh, to, to compromise himself and stay there. More on that later. So they go home, the narrator tells us. These, uh, these two men come into Lot's home. And before they go to bed, there's a banging on the door. The whole town, the narrator says, has come to the door. The young and the old. They've come to Lot's door demanding that these two visitors be sent out so that they can basically know them. That's the Bible nice way of saying have sex with them. Now, a lot has been made out of the story about the story of Sodom and homosexuality. There's other places in the Bible that talk about that, of course. But this story really isn't so much about homosexuality as it is about a human society organized without God at the center. Their sin is living as though God weren't around, didn't exist, wasn't going to judge them for anything that they did. In other books of the Bible, the sin of Sodom is talked about. You know what, it's, you know what it says? Things like adultery, lying, abetting criminals, arrogance, complacency, not showing pity to those in need. In this story, this group of sodomites, the whole town, it says, have come to the door, and they're attempting to gang-rape these two visitors. It really has nothing to do about sex and sexual lust and everything to do about power. The sodomites um, were trying to exert their dominance over these people and humiliate them. The, in the ancient Near East, you would... Uh, just be blunt, uh, the rape of men was something you would do to completely demoralize them, to humiliate them. 
in, um, there's records of uh, when a conquering king would conquer a city-state, they would come in and oftentimes they would let the younger men uh, violate the conquered king. It would completely say, we are in charge here. And it was used for humiliation and power. And so these sodomites' um, <clears throat> violence and lack of hospitality here is contrasted greatly by Abraham's hospitality and by Lot's hospitality and then Lot shows, actually in the beginning part here, he shows great courage. He goes out his own door, closes the door behind him, which cuts off his escape route, protects the people in the house, and he, he calls these people, he calls this mob on what they're doing. He says, what you're doing is wicked. Don't do this wicked thing. Well, that's when the story gets even weirder. Because then he says, well, I've got these two girls, my daughters, and they're virgins, and you could have them instead. And they're already pledged to be married to other guys. I, this is absolutely appalling to me. And probably to you, too, because we're coming at this from the 21st century. I can't imagine a scenario in my life where this makes any kind of sense. Sure, you can talk about ancient hospitality rules and how important it was to protect your guests, but it was also very important to protect your family. Some people try and explain it away by saying, uh, well, Lot's daughters were engaged to sodomite men. And so maybe he was just trying to sober this crowd saying, okay, are you going to rape the future wives of your own sons? <laughs> Whatever. I, I, I don't really buy that. Um, <laughs> that's not a chance I'd be willing to take. I mean, at least, all right, give my girl a club and let, let's go down swinging at least, right? I think what's important in the story is to notice, what, what does the narrator say about this? The narrator doesn't even make a value judgment about Lot's decision here. It's like, we make a big deal out of this part of the story because it's really weird and horrible in our thinking. That's not even the point of, of the story. The point is, is that Lot is so buddied up to this evil society. He's so accommodated himself to this way of life that now he is... I want to say, uh, he's, in he's, in a, he's between a rock and a hard place. He has two very bad choices to make. And he's put himself there. Thankfully, the two travelers show their cards and they start to act like angels. They reach out, they grab Lot, they block the door, and they make the whole mob blind. And it's more than just like physical blindness. It's like uh, uh, the Hebrews talks, it's more, it's blindness with confusion. All right? I don't know if you've thought about this, but even them making this mob blind is an act of mercy. Clearly, clearly there are not ten righteous people in this whole city. The narrator's gone to great lengths to say everyone is at the door, except for Lot and his little family. Clearly there's not ten people. Before in chapter 18, God said, if there's not ten, I'm going I'm to destroy this place. Clearly these people deserve judgment. But instead of the angels meeting out judgment, and you know they could, like other places in the Bible, like angels are, are bad dudes. Like, I mean, they're good, but you know what I'm saying? They can kick some butt. Uh, they could take out, I mean, one of these angels could totally annihilate this city. Instead, the angels strike people with blindness. Now, why do they do that? In Scripture, God sometimes afflicts people with blindness or, or deafness or, or mute or some kind of... Um, some kind of problem or illness to get their attention. It's like when you're overworking yourself, right? And you just keep 
burning the candle at both ends, and all of a sudden you get sick. And so you're home in bed, and you have a choice. You're there with this, this built-in rest. You cannot get up. So you, you can say, uh, I cannot wait till I get better. I'm just going to go back to the way things were. Or you can say, wow, maybe I'm overworking myself. Maybe I should make some adjustments in my life. Exercise more and do a little less. If you make that decision to change your life and to live at a little different pace, you know what that's called? That's repentance. That's changing your life. It's turning around from doing things one way and doing them a different way. Changing your life. Well, in the New Testament, John the Baptist's dad, uh, Zechariah, he gets visited by this angel. And Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are really old. They can't have kids anymore. But the angel says, hey, uh, your wife's going to have a kid, and I want you to name him John. <laughs> he doesn't believe the angel. So the angel says, all right, you can't talk now. What? Uh, so, I mean, Zechariah is this priest. I, I can't imagine if God took my voice away, I wouldn't be of much use to you on Sunday mornings, right? Evenings. Uh, uh, so Zechariah, this priest, cannot talk. For nine months, he can't talk. Now, he could do one of two things. He could be really ticked off and just be stubborn, or he can do what he did. And in that nine months, while that, that baby is growing inside Elizabeth, he repents. He has a change of heart. So Elizabeth gives birth to this baby, and all the men of the family are saying, What? You can't name him John. There's no Johns in our family. You've got to name him Zechariah or some kind of weird family name like that. They say, hey, Zachariah, what do you think? And he signals for a piece of uh, pottery to write stuff down. And he says, uh, his name shall be John. As soon as he does that in faith, his tongue is loosed and he can talk again. So this affliction on Zachariah caused him to turn toward God, to repent. Now, you'd think, well, hopefully you would never think this, but you would think if you were in a mob trying to gang rape some visitors in your city and some angels came who could clearly kill you and they gave you blindness instead, you'd think you'd take stock of your life and say, wow, I almost got zapped. Maybe I should go home and rethink my life. Like maybe gang raping visitors isn't a great thing to do. Maybe this blindness is a little like, whoa, my life is out of control. But these guys, can you imagine the scene? They're so bent on evil that they're still bumping around, like looking for the door. I mean, how screwed up is that? Kind of like zombies, right? They're so set toward evil, even when they keep getting these second chances. And that's when God makes the decision, you know what? It's judgment time. He gives them opportunity and opportunity, but they continue to refuse him. I'll say this, God doesn't want to judge anybody. It breaks his heart. But when people continually organize themselves without God, when their hearts are bent on evil and hurting other people, he will defend the weak. Remember, in many of the scriptures, the people ask, God, please come and judge this wicked world. Like, judgment's a good thing if you're one of the people that's always oppressed or always down. For the weak and powerless, judgment means rescue. So the angels tell Lot to get his family and go. Get out of here. Flee. His sons-in-law think he's joking. They don't make it. Lot hesitates. And so the angels, literally in the language, they grab him. They pull him out. Let's go, man. That's how bad God wants to rescue anyone who can be rescued. Like literally pulling them out of the city. 
They tell Lot, go up into the caves, into the wilderness, and you'll survive this. But he whines. Oh, man, this guy's a whiner. He becomes soft and accustomed to city life. Well, I can hear him saying, they don't have Trader Joe's and Costco in the caves. Can I go to this little town, Zoar? It's pretty far away from Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'll be safe there. Even in his hesitation, even in his lack of faith, God works with him and allows him to stay in this little town, Zoar. God bends over backwards in this story to rescue Lot, even when he hesitates, even when it was hard for him to leave his old life behind. Walter Brueggemann writes, Many people live in a terror of God, which is rooted in moralism, assuming that God has no other agenda than to keep the indictment punishment scheme operative. God is not indifferent or tyrannical, not a distributor of rewards and punishment. Rather, God actively seeks a way out of death for us all. In this story, we see that God is faithful to Abraham. Isn't that weird? God is faithful to Abraham. He promised to bless Abraham and to allow Abraham to be a blessing to the world. Abraham interceded in chapter 18 on the behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God rescued the righteous, the righteous one in his family, not even ten. And it's for that reason I think that this is a story of hope. It's a story about God being just and being faithful to rescue the righteous and punish the wicked. All he requires is faith and trust and obedience. And that's the part where Lot's wife comes into play. Her turning back represents her longing for the former life. She'd rather be part of a broken and twisted and evil society because she was comfortable there. She'd rather be part of that old life then go on to the unknown with God, but go into life with God. And, you know, frankly, I suspect that's where many of us live, right? That in-between world of following God and, wait a minute, I really like these comforts back here. We love the fact that God rescues. We sing about it. We preach about it. We love to talk about how God loves the weak and how God loves the voiceless, how God loves the 99%, if we put it in today's terms, right? But what we often find when we look in the mirror is that we are the powerful. We, what we often find is that we compromise with evil a lot for the sake of our own comfort. We are the 1%. We don't want to give up maybe certain parts of our lives. We, and I'm including myself in this, have grown comfortable with some Sodoms in our life, if you will. And even though this story is good news for Lot and Abraham, it's still very scary if our rescue, if our salvation is tied up in our own works, in our own righteousness. This story in Genesis 19, I think, is pretty good news, but it leaves us wanting for a better gospel. It leaves me wanting for better news. And that's why I think the rest of chapter 19 exists. If you thought the story was weird, it gets really weird when Lot and his daughters end up leaving Zoar for some reason out of fear and they go up to the caves. Well, his daughters, I think they're well-meaning. They see their old dad there. His wife is gone. She's a pillar of salt. Poor dad. And so 
he's up in the cave, and, and in, in that world, I mean, there's no thought of really immortality. The thought was you, you preserve your name through descendants. So here's Lot and two girls, no one to pass on the family name. And so they think, well, let's help dad out. Let's get him drunk and sleep with him <clears throat> two nights in a row. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I was in the Coast Guard. I've had some times where I've drank a few too many. I've seen guys get destroyed uh, on, on nights partying. I've never seen someone so drunk that they could sleep with their own daughter and not remember it two nights in a row. I mean, this is ridiculous. From this episode, we see that the oldest daughter gives birth to a son named Moab. The second daughter gives birth to a son named Ammon. And of course, if you keep reading the Bible, you see that these Moabites and these Ammonites that come out of these boys become real pains in the butt for Israel. I mean, they, they're always fighting with each other and bickering back and forth. And it would seem that God rescued Lot from the fate of Sodom and that nothing good came out of it. I mean, he does all this effort to rescue Lot, and he goes up in a cave and, yeah, you know. But looks, looks can be deceiving. And that's, that's good news. From the tribe of Moab, this screwed up group of people that came out of this incestuous relationship, comes a young lady named Ruth. Comes a young lady named Ruth. And she named a man named Boaz. Boaz from the descendants of Abraham, the one who was promised to be, bring the savior of the world. Wow. Well, they have a son and they name him Obed. And then Obed has a kid named Jesse. And Jesse has lots of kids. And one of them is none other than little ruddy redhead David. Yeah, that David, King David, the one through whom the savior of the world, Jesus the Christ, is promised. <laughs> That's awesome. God's judgment is not the final word. His rescue is. In Jesus, God would take on the consequences of sin. God himself would take on all of that judgment. He would die that we could live. Listen to what uh, John Stackhouse writes. God absorbs the pain. God bears the shame. God swallows the anger and opens up his divine arms towards us again. Anyone who asks, why doesn't he just forgive? Like, why Jesus? Anyone who asks that question has never really forgiven a serious offense. Forgiveness always costs the forgiver. And that's why Jesus died. And you know what that means. That means that there's nothing that you have ever done that God cannot forgive through Jesus. There is no pit too deep that you're in right now that God cannot reach down and rescue you from. And that is gospel. That's good news. Jesus is the better rescue that Genesis 19 points to. And that begs the question, I guess, where are we? Jesus said he came to save the world, not to destroy it. He calls us to follow him on this adventure of faith and life and goodness. And he calls us to leave behind some of these habits and ruts that bring death in order for us to find new life. I want to ask the question, what does that look like for us? What does that look like for you? When I say us, I mean as a church. When I say you, I mean as, as us as individuals. And I want to give us um, some time of silent response. So some of the things you could do would be, hey, maybe you just need to ask Jesus to forgive you. Maybe there's something that you, you've been carrying 
And you've just said, there's no way anyone could forgive me for this. Maybe that's how you use this time. Or maybe, you know, you've done that. You've, you've walked through that hoop and there's just, uh, there's a barrier in your life from following Jesus in the next step. Maybe giving something up or, um, or maybe he's calling you to something awesome and radical and you're, you're afraid. Whatever it is, use this time to process what would it look like if the Savior of the world broke into your life and set you free of whatever was holding you back. Remember, he doesn't demand perfection. He just wants your heart. All right, so take a few moments. I think you guys are going to play some music here. Yeah.